Hello and welcome to another episode of the Project Purple Podcast. I'm Dino Varelli, founder and CEO of Project Purple. And today we're on the phone with a good friend of mine and someone who's been within the Project Purple family for quite some time, Jane Cullis. Jane, how are you? I'm good. How are you, Dino? I am doing awesome. And for this podcast, some of our listeners may know you as Coach Jane, which we retired earlier this year. We were sad to see you kind of uh, retire from that stint. But for this podcast, we're going to be focusing on what you do. I would say nine to five, but it's probably more like <laughs> nine to midnight, I think. But Jane is a postdoctorate fellow at NYU Langone Medical Center in the lab of Daphna Barsaghi. And Daphna has been a grant recipient of ours a couple years back. Jane, uh, we just happened to see at NYU two weeks ago when we were on our way to uh, distribute some funds, our largest grant ever, to Dr. Diane Simeone there at NYU. So there's so many great things going on, and we wanted to have you on the podcast today to talk about what you're doing in the lab and not so much uh, what you're doing in terms of running, because I don't think you're running as much anymore, but we can get into that a little bit later. Sure. Yeah, well, thank you so much for having me on the podcast. I'm very happy to be here. And as Dino mentioned, I've been part of the Project Purple family for many years now, I think since 2014. Um, so, yes, I've retired from uh, the running coach, um, but I mean, that was a, maybe a long time coming. I haven't been running in a long time. And <laughs> I spend all of my hours uh, working uh, in the lab of Daphna Barsaghi at the NYU Lango Medical Center. So um, the lab here, uh, basically the primary focus is pancreatic cancer research. And uh, I'm a postdoctoral fellow, which basically means I'm just a research scientist in the lab. And there's about um, 15 of us total, maybe a few more than that. Um, and that includes many graduate students, um, other postdoctoral fellows, research technicians, and a lab manager. And we all have different projects in the lab, um, but they're all centered around um, trying to understand um, some of the mechanisms contributing to pancreatic cancer development. And if we understand these, then ways we can utilize uh, these insights in order to develop better therapeutics uh, in the disease. So, I mean, I can tell you a little bit about the work that I'm actually doing. Um, so, um, if I think a lot of our listeners may have some familiarity with the disease if you're uh, listening uh, to this. And... Uh, basically, a major advancement that in our understanding of the disease has been that uh, really it's not just a disease of the tumor cells and the tumor cells that in and of themselves are growing uncontrollably. There's really a huge kind of microenvironment of the tumor that comprises uh, other cell types like immune cells um, as well as structural components. So, for example, the main protein in our skin, collagen, actually pancreas tumors are full of this collagen and it kind of structurally acts as a barrier to drugs 
Um, the immune cells are different, so they're not working properly and not able to actually kill the tumor cells. And there's actually interactions between the, the collagen, the uh, tumor cells, as well as the immune cells. And all of this, A, prevents drugs from getting into the tumor and killing the tumor cells. And also, it helps the tumor grow. So, Jane, I'm going yeah. to cut you off there for a second. Sure, yeah, interrupt. Because I want to get into this stuff. But before we do that, I want to kind of give our listeners your background a bit. And I know you did a kind of a, a very high level, but these are when the tough questions are going to come. And, and as I said, this is a really a conversation and hopefully an education for our listeners at home. But you're in the lab at NYU, but let's take a step back a little bit. Sure. How did you get to NYU? And, and let's give our listeners a little bit of a background on, you know, why pancreatic cancer is one of my questions. Um, you know, why this disease specific? Because clearly, you know, going into the science field, there's so many different diseases, there's so many different angles that you can go. And I know your family had a big influence on this, but I want to share that for our listeners. So for our listeners at home, why don't we just back up a little bit and just, if you want, um, please share as much as you want or as little as you want, but just talk about, you know, where you were before getting to New York, because I think your story is really fascinating. And, and again, you're part of the yeah. Project Purple family. So, so even some of our listeners at home that have run for us may not know some of the things that I, I hope you do uh, tell the audience here. Well, so I'm originally from Canada, and I grew up there in Vancouver. Um, and I left Vancouver, where my parents uh, still are, when I was 17, to to go to undergrad uh, at McGill University. And Which is in I've Toronto? Always, yeah. Sorry? M McGill is in Toronto, correct? No, McGill's in Montreal. Montreal, so that's right, that's right, Montreal. That's where I did my undergraduate degree in biochemistry, and that's really where I made the decision I would go into science, um, and it's always been my inclination and my strength, um, but I think, you know, I also love writing, I still love writing, and um, my, my mom's an editor, so I was a little bit torn between arts and science. Um, but, you know, I figured going into scientific research, you can really do a lot of writing in that realm as well. And so I took that route. And as you alluded to, my dad has had a big influence on me. He's also um, a cancer researcher, and he's done a lot of work in developing therapeutics that are used to uh, treat many kinds of diseases in addition to cancer. Um so definitely, uh, he was a major inspiration for me. Um, after I, I finished my undergrad in biochemistry, I uh, went to pursue a PhD. And this is when I moved to Toronto, um, just next door, uh, University of Toronto, and uh, did a PhD in medical biophysics. But actually, my thesis work ended up focusing on, and it's kind of fortuitous, that um, the gene I was working on ended up being an important gene in pancreatic cancer. So the lab I was working in wasn't really focused on the disease, but I started to read up a, a lot on it. And actually, my grandfather, when I was young, had passed away from the disease. So I was very interested um, to know more about it and why there was no effective therapeutics and scientifically, it's just very interesting 
um, to study how different the disease was from other cancers. So I started to read a lot of um, the pioneer in the field's research, Daphna Barsaghi, read her papers from the 1980s identifying functions of these genes that cause pancreatic cancer called RAS oncogenes and how she did so much work in understanding them way back when. And so I, and, and you know, it kind of ties back into the whole uh, writing uh, thing. It's her papers and her reviews were so well written and I just, I really enjoyed reading them. She made science science very digestible and easy to understand. So um, I basically decided at the end of my PhD, I wanted to continue on in this field of research. And um, that brought me to New York because I, I basically sent her an email uh, after I graduated saying, hi, I want to work for you. Do you have any positions for postdoctoral fellows in your lab? And, you know, usually when you send these emails out, you pretty much you don't think you're going to hear back. Mm -hmm. I didn't think there was a huge chance of that happening. And she actually wrote back very quickly and invited me out for an interview. Um, so I went a couple months later, gave a seminar, and um, I think it was like the day or two after she gave me an offer. So it happened very quickly, um, and it was very exciting for me. Um, so moving here, A, to come to New York City an awesome city, but um, really working for one of um, my idols uh, in the field was, um, yeah, it was a very, very special moment. So question for you. I got two questions. Mm -hmm. What was it at that point in time, I, I, I guess we'll call it a tipping point, to take pancreatic cancer on? Was it the fact that your grandfather had passed or was it from reading about the specific gene, how tough? It was the reading. Yeah. Um, I think I always wanted to know I wanted to be in some kind of research that had an application. So, like, not just basic research where, you know, like, I love math, but I don't want to teach math and try and figure out new algorithms. Like, I wanted something that would be helpful um, to people and um, obviously cancer is a major field that we still don't know a lot about where a lot of uh, impact can be made. So pancreatic cancer especially. So I think it was the science that really drove me to pursue the specific cancer. But obviously my I have a different level or an additional level of passion for what I'm doing because I have also had someone who uh, lost their life to the disease and you know, just from witnessing what, you know, my mother went through, I know how hard it is and how terrible it is to see someone die so quickly um, of the disease. So I would say it's both, but I would say that the science has uh, superseded um, my decision to focus on, on pancreatic cancer. Well, we thank you for doing that. Um, and I thank you that uh, for doing what you're doing. Uh, and it's it's awesome to have some really bright, talented, and very young people at this thing. Now, to talk about Daphna, now, how many times did you get have to email or 
message Daphna to get her uh, on the phone because she's a pretty busy person. And for those of you who don't know, know who Daphna is, I mean, she's she's one of the preeminent female scientists in this disease and has been there for quite some time and has a very yeah. big position at NYU. So to get her attention, you probably had to do something right multiple times so what was it what did you get her on the line the first time that's what i'm kind of interested in you would think yeah <laughs> but uh so now that i've been here several years i have more of a backstory so i thought i just emailed her and it was one email one email and um i told her about my work and how much you know i read about her her research in the lab and how i would be honored to to, to meet her or to have a conversation with her. And yeah, that one email, I got a response very quickly. And it, and actually, I think the response just said, send me your CV, which I did. And then I was invited for an interview. But actually, I think what happened was, um, so she was at a conference with my PhD supervisor about six months or eight months earlier than I had emailed her. Mm. And he actually gave a talk, and he presented basically all of my PhD work, which um, was centered on pancreatic cancer. And so she was in the audience and saw the talk, and actually they briefly spoke afterwards, and he mentioned, oh, you know, uh, my PhD student, Jane Cullis, did all this work, and she was you know, um, very impressed by it, I guess. <laughs> so, she, and she remembered. So, so when I emailed her, she remembered me from that talk and remembered the data that was shown. And I think that's what pushed her um, to invite me for an interview. That's fascinating. So I was lucky. <laughs> well, I, I don't think there's any such thing as luck. You put the time in, you know, to get to where you were in that right position. I think, you know, Let's let's face the honesty and the truth here, Jane. Like you put in how many years leading up to this point to get to that? So all that hard work yeah. at your PhD, so my, my PhD and undergrad. Was about six and a half years. Yeah. So that's not luck. That's just hard work. And, and yeah. yeah, I mean, I guess we can say luck in the sense of like, hey, like the timing. I the guess the timing was, of it all. But good. yeah, I yeah. mean, yeah, I I don't I wouldn't say luck because that's just a lot of hard work, and I I think you're being too kind to yourself or you know that that's just a ton of work to do now for our listeners at home who don't know this and some people you know part of the family as we mentioned in the beginning of the call you were doing a lot of our coaching up until the beginning of the year here so mm -hmm. you're doing all this schooling you're you know you're, you're knee deep in your phd and everything but you are also competing and competed mm -hmm. at a very super high level in terms of running yes yeah that so it's a double challenge there um i had a very regimented lifestyle that's for <laughs> sure um but i i always ran so when i went to mcgill i started running varsity track and field and i loved it and did it all through my undergrad but yes when i i went to toronto started my phd I actually joined an elite development group uh, there that was all women um, trying to um, make it at the elite level in running. And really, I trained with some of the best runners in all of Canada and um, did reach a very high level. But um, it was a lot of training. And a lot of these women 
didn't have day jobs. <laughs> yeah. You know, they did running or they did triathlon professionally. Um, whereas I worked, again, not even nine to five. I think I still <laughs> work long, longer hours than that in my PhD. Um, but I was running twice a day. So 5.30 or 6 in the morning, get in 10 to 12 miles. And then in the afternoons, often uh, afternoons, I should say evenings, 6, 6.30, Again, I was running, doing a workout or another easy run, um, and really competing in 10Ks and half marathons um, at the elite level. And in the last few years, I was sponsored by Adidas and ran with a group uh, that eventually every, we all got uh, sponsored by Adidas. And it was a great, awesome time, but really uh, it, was, it was tough to do that as well as um, try and work hard in the lab. Um, finishing my PhD, so, so yeah, I feel there... like I can't complain now because I don't run. So yeah, <laughs> <But> true. <laughs> well, so was there a point at some, you know, was there again a tipping point, or what was the catalyst to say, you know what, I think I'm going to hang up the sneakers because you, because mm-hmm. clearly you're having success. I mean, I know what your times are, and and I think your what your your personal best in the half. Correct me if I'm wrong. Was like it was a one sixteen. Yeah, which is like I mean, like that's competitive, and you yeah. know, with putting in a little bit more work, I'm sure you know. I mean, that's that's elite. Let's put it that way, or sub elite, or right on that fringe of, you know, depending. I mean, you you probably win a couple races depending on where you ran with that time. So was oh, yeah. there was there in Canada? I mean, yeah, yeah. I mean so here in the best- U.S. Yeah. In my best year, I was winning, like, would win 12 races in the year. And you know what? I did it because I loved it. And I think um, what happened was really I just went overboard with the training, with the racing, and I got a terrible injury. And it wasn't just that. I think because I was pushing myself so hard with running and with with work, I wasn't recovering properly, so yeah. I ended up tearing a tendon in my shin Ooh. in a training run. And um, I was actually building up for the Chicago Marathon in, I think it was 2012 or 2011, and um, I was doing about a 26-mile run. And uh, during that run, I, could, I just knew I was in so much pain, but I was insistent on finishing it. And at the end, I couldn't walk and... It really took about a year to get over that, so I lost a lot of fitness. And I mean, in that year is when I actually finished my PhD and defended. Um, but it was very difficult to come back after that because also moving cities and deciding I wanted to focus on my career as a scientist. Um, that's when I really decided, okay, you know, like I'm not I'm not going to go to the Olympics. I'm not going to be a professional runner. So. If you get better, continue to run. But I made a decision then that I would not compete at that level again because it just takes so much time and so much out of you. It's so crazy. I, I mean, you know, it, it, it's just, um, you know, getting an injury like that, you know, I don't know, maybe if you didn't get that injury and you stayed healthy, what what would the, the course of history yeah. been, you know? And it's fascinating. Yeah. I mean, we look at the professional level just to talk about running here, you know, and you and I have talked about this, like some people just peak at the right time, you know, and, yeah. and you just you just never know. But there's 
again, a lot of hard work to get to that point. Like you said, you won 12 races, and I, you know, and here I am like, oh yeah, you would have won a race. And Jane's like, well, I won 12 in Canada. Well, you know, well, you know it depends where you are. Yeah, you know, no, no, but I'm just saying though, but that's all work. You know, you're putting the work in, you know, my point yeah. is here is like, it's not like you just show up on race day and run, you know, at that level, like your people are putting in hours and hours and hours and hours upon hours of work to get to that well, level yeah and i think that's why i really like the sport and why a lot of our listeners and project purple runners like it too is it's the individual sport where really the work that you put in is what you get out of it and it is a cumulative sport so all those years of running and gradually increasing my mileage i was just getting stronger and stronger and stronger and it's not like one workout or one race, or one run makes you, you know, suddenly jump ahead. It's really a linear process. So I really like that as a scientist, you know, where it can be very linear and you like to see results from the work that you put in. I found it very satisfying. Um, So, yeah, but it is, you know, the strength comes over years and years of running. And the, the elites that you see now, you know, that maybe seem like they have broken through and all of a sudden, you know, they win a race and you've never heard of them before and you think, oh, like, what did they do in the last year to get, you know, this strong? But really, it's probably like 10 years of work they've been putting in and gradually getting better. So, but Jane, though, that's a similar correlation, though, to what research is, though, don't you think? Like, Oh, we, definitely. You know, yeah. so it's kind of a fascinating parallel here to jump back into the research here. So you do your undergrad, your PhD, and now how long have you been with Daphna at NYU? You've been there since 14, correct? So you've been there almost um, five years, four years? Yeah, five years. Mm-hmm. So you've invested, how long did it take you to get your PhD? Six and a half. And not to age you here, but so that's 11 years that you've spent in this this field, yep. plus not including your undergrad. So that's another, you know, four years, I would assume, in that range. Mm-hmm. So we're yep. talking, you know, collectively through the years, almost 15 years dedicated to this disease, yep. which is, you know, just talking about the hard work that you have to put in to achieve success at the marathon or running distance level. Um, it's similar, you know, similar parallel here on the science side. Yeah, definitely. So with what you guys are doing there at NYU, um, I've got a question for you. So and I'm going to put you on the spot here. From when you came in, and I know Daphna's got a big, you know, her big thing was the KRAS um, and RAS mutations, which, correct me if I'm wrong, in, in pancreatic cancer cases, and not talking about neuroendocrine, but pancreatic cancer, um, excluding neuroendocrine tumors, KRAS mutations account for about 75% of the cases? I would say more than that. I mean, it's, yeah, driven, the gene is mutated in correct. over 95%. So it's 95%. And we all have KRAS in our body. So for those listening at home, KRAS is not like this mutant genetic um, gene that you have that automatically shows up when you get the disease. RAS, or is it RAS or KRAS? I just want to be correct here. So actually all, so it's a family. So there's H, K, and NRAS. KRAS is almost exclusively mutated in pancreatic cancer. The other ones are also mutated in different cancers, but yes, KRAS is the one that's mutated in pancreas cancer. But we all have KRAS in us, correct? Yeah. 
Okay. Yeah, it's usually not mutated, but we don't have the genome. Yeah, and, and that's really the, 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 the silver bullet is to try to find out what mutates the KRAS. And, and Daphna's really kind of been a pioneer in that, and you guys in the lab have been working steadily and fast and, and as hard as possible to, to try to solve that riddle. Do you mm -hmm. think in the five years that you've been there at Daphna's lab, and I'm going to put you on the spot, are we, are we any better? Yes. Oh, certainly. Um, because actually, it's funny that you you really highlight um, KRAS because I think that has been her interest primarily since the 1980s, and it still is, and we're still looking at processes that are driven by KRAS. But she's not necessarily, and we are collectively here, are not necessarily um, really um, concerned and working towards targeting the KRAS gene specifically. We're actually trying to adopt a more holistic approach of A, trying to target some of the functions of the gene that are important for the tumor growth. So uh, one is macropenocytosis. It's basically a form of cell eating. So KRAS drives this process where it can take in proteins from um, the body and actually that to fuel the growth of the, the tumor. And then also um, how KRAS tumors are recruiting or are suppressing the immune system in the tumor because that's also something that KRAS can do. So we're trying to look at these other things that are really important in the tumor and really try and target those and figure out why those have gone awry in a KRAS-dependent manner. Um, and there's other labs looking at actually inhibiting the KRAS itself without proving a big challenge. Well, there's so many, I think there's so many avenues we can go, right? Because I know I've from yeah. through the years talking to and listening to so many scientists, you know, there's the tumor itself, right? And so there's a way to, you know, close off the highways and there's ways to look at the environment and to affect that environment to allow faster delivery of drugs and uh, would you say, though, that we are more knowledgeable about the disease today than mm -hmm. we were five years ago? But oh, do you, for sure. Do you think, and I agree with you there, but do you think the more that we know, the more complex it becomes? Because I've yes. had this discussion with, with various scientists that it becomes a challenge now because we, we what we thought we knew, we don't know. And now that we do know what we know, know it becomes such more of a, of a complex situation. Yeah, and um, I, I totally agree with you, and I think we're making progress, but I think there's a lot more we need to understand, a lot more progress that needs to be made. And, you know, I'll, I'll elaborate on the example you're, you're giving, and, and it's funny you use the highway analogy, but <laughs> um, I think Andrew Polak, who used to be a biotech uh, journalist, the New York Times um, kind of coined this analogy, which is that tumor is like the New York City grid system, and the tumor cells are the traffic and all the cars. So originally, you know, say we identified the RAS oncogene, and we're like, okay, we need to inhibit this because it's mutated in all the cancers. So even if we could develop a drug that inhibited RAS, that would be like putting up a roadblock on one street and expecting it to stop all traffic. 
Well, you might stop traffic on that one major street where there's lots of cars that are driving aggressively, which is rash. But, you know, eventually they're going to figure out a way to take another route and drive even faster uh, down another street, and there's still going to be lots of traffic. And this is kind of an evolution. It's like survival of the fittest. And this is what tumors are utilizing to grow. It's nothing new. This is what's naturally happened, you know, in our human development. So they'll have another mutation um, in a different pathway. And that then the tumor will be dependent on that. So now, I mean, now that we understand that, now people are saying there's two emerging concepts. One of them is, okay. Well, and one of the, so this one's called precision medicine, which I'm sure you've yeah. heard about. Precision medicine is basically, um, now that we know a lot of the molecular changes that are happening in the tumor, so besides KRAS, there's other mutations like loss of tumor suppressor genes um, and other mutated oncogenes. So those are like different roads down the New York City grid that we know can drive the tumor too. So precision medicine is saying, okay, let's take a patient, let's find all of the molecular changes that um, are driving their tumor and put roadblocks at every single one of them. So not just one roadblock, but we're going to put in five roadblocks or five drugs on this patient. And that does show great promise. But the problem is, is, you know, no matter how many roadblocks you put up, the tumor cells are very smart and white might kill off most of the cars, there's still going to be some that find a way around. And it might be a new way that we discover later. But this is a problem with drug resistance and then the tumors reappearing and maybe metastasizing. So this leads me into the second emerging concept, which is immunotherapy. And the good thing about immunotherapy is that it doesn't care about the different mutations. It sees all of them as foreign and if we have a proper immune system it can kill all of those so immunotherapy is basically like putting on the brakes on all of the cars on the new york city grid system and so no one can drive so we're trying to find basically in pancreatic cancer we're trying to figure out how we can shift the immune system and the tumor to its regular state such that it can kill off all of And this isn't a foolproof um, mechanism either because we know that immunotherapy is not a miracle strategy. There's lots of tumors that aren't responsive to immunotherapy because there's like the Elon Musk cars that don't have brakes. So like they can keep driving, you know, like automatic cars. I don't know if that's the right analogy. But so there's always hurdles, but I really think... The most promising strategy is going to be some combination of immunotherapies, maybe also precision medicine, but um, I'm, I'm more on the side of immunotherapy. I think the Elon Musk analogy was probably a hard one because I think he would find a way for it to not fail. Uh, <laughs> You're probably so, right. Maybe we should get him into pancreas. Yeah, oh, I love, I love his. Uh, I'd love to get him involved in pancreas disease and cancer because I think he'd figure it out pretty fast, and he has the means to do that. So. Staying on that, and I, I've been taking notes here. I, I just want to. I'm going to take like three steps backwards. Okay. Why do you think it's so complex? And my questions here, or my answers, so there's, it's multiple choice. 
do we not know enough or has it never been done before, Jane? And that's kind of putting you on the spot. And, and I know like with immunotherapy, like I think medical oncologists probably cringe and I'm going to, I'm going to go out on a limb here when a patient comes in and says, I want to do immunotherapy because mm-hmm. I, I know from having survivors on the, on the podcast and also talking to medical oncologists that unfortunately with pancreatic cancer, immunotherapy has been a dud. I mean, it hasn't worked, right? Yeah. I mean, there's not, I mean, I think it's worked for one-offs, like one or two people, which is phenomenal. And, you know, those mm-hmm. now become advocates and survivors. But I think for the masses, it's just not, it, compared to other cancers, it just not, it hasn't been effective. And no one can understand why, right? I mean, some of the brightest people in this well, disease. We, do, we have clues of why. And that's why we're working to to try and um, improve immuno, immunotherapies to get around these things, that, the reasons we know it's not working. So it actually works. So, for example, it works really well in melanoma and yeah. um, lung cancer. Lung cancer, it's worked cancer. really well, right? Uh, you know, and then some brain cancers has worked really well. So do you think but, that... So, okay, to answer your question, I think, yes, there's a lot that we don't know, which is the reason. Mm-hmm. We also have to understand that um, cancer is not one disease. You know, it's not like we're trying to cure one disease. A lot of very well-known scientists will say that cancer is dozens of diseases, if not hundreds. I would say that pancreatic cancer in and of itself is dozens of diseases because every patient has a different tumor and a different mutations and different number of immune cells and different amount of collagen. So, you know, you're not just trying to treat, a, you know, one single thing. That's what why it's so complex and it's a huge challenge. Um, and that that's how cancer has evolved to be so that that really is the biggest challenge i think uh for scientists and clinicians um to get around and I think um, you, you just Sorry, said something no you just said something very profound that i hope our listeners at home take to heart that it is so complex and it is not i'll use i'll i'll dial it down and use the, the phrase that I, I often use which is it's not one size fits all you know for cancer treatment right. and i think this is something that we preach and that I preach to families and if they're listening is that you have to go to a comprehensive cancer center that deals with this disease day in day out and not a generalist and not your community setting and there's nothing wrong with a community hospital post and a lot of community hospitals can maybe give the same type of treatment possibly with the guidance of a, of a, another oncologist at one of these comprehensive centers. But it is really critical that these people that are fighting go to a high volume center and a comprehensive cancer center. And there's many groups out there where one of them included that can help navigate through that. Cause I know sometimes it can be really, really daunting for families that are battling the disease, but 
I think what you just said, you know, on the science side and, and also uh, speaking for the clinicians, um, you know, that this is so complex and everyone is different and mm-hmm. it is not one size fits all because I know with this disease, I mean, just looking at it from a genetic standpoint, we do know that if someone is a BRCA positive, that there's a cocktail of drugs that does really well. And right. we've had people on the podcast you know, recently we had uh, Kevin Chunard, one of our survivors that was on the podcast and he was on, uh, you know, he was in pretty bad shape. I mean, he was he was so ill, Jane, when we had him here in the studio and it was just fascinating listening to this right in person. But, you know, his wife even said, you know, he couldn't get his head off the pillow and then yeah. they, they were waiting on genetic testing and the genetic test came back that he was BRCA2 positive and they changed his whole treatment protocol and he walked in here that day like he came played 18 holes of golf and it was like you know nine months prior to a year that he was in such bad shape and even the wife had said jody who ran on our new york team this year new york marathon team she said you know i was really you know in a a bad bad place and you know they didn't know you know if he would make it you know but just knowing that genetic makeup of those genes and of the tumor yeah, is so powerful it jane it is just so fascinating to me and i had this question too with genetic testing for you and then also your opinion here you know from the scientific standpoint that still in this day and age that people are not going through this whole i, I think precision medicine is going to change a lot of that and that's going to happen you know mm-hmm. sooner than later but it's just so fascinating to me that people just oncologists just don't they don't bother to do it and there's so many people out there that could probably it could be a game changer so for the folks listening at home make sure you ask for that but your personal thoughts Jane on that I mean did you guys from a family let me ask you two questions Uh, I want to hear your personal thoughts one but then secondly did you from a family perspective did you guys ever were you able to ever look at the genetic marking of your grandfather's tumor or have you done genetic Counseling. No, I mean at, at that time, not like his his tumor probably wasn't even um, saved or or resected. You know, like we weren't taking samples or anything. So I have no idea if he had some kind of predisposition. Um, but you know, besides the BRCA mutation, there aren't a lot of um, really known strong risk factors genetically for yep. pancreatic cancer. Even if you say you looked at KRAS, actually a lot of people walking around perfectly healthy who will never get pancreas disease have a KRAS mutation. So it's not necessarily predictive. So you don't want to go around telling people, oh, you have a KRAS mutation, you know, and freak them out for no reason. So the BRCA is a really good indicator that you have, you know, that you maybe you should um, be screened. Um, but... Yes, I think genetic testing is is important, and now that we have um, the ability to test all these different oncogenes, I think it's good to do, but uh, to some extent, we still don't really know what to do with the information because we don't know, you know, what really is a strong risk factor for different diseases, and even if we did know, we don't really know what we can do about it, right? Like, even if we know that someone's at risk for pancreatic cancer, we don't have a way to prevent it. We we don't, I don't even know what advice you would give except for regular screening. And even if you started to see a tumor grow, 
we don't have drugs that can even prevent early disease. So it's, that's the problem, I think. Um, but certainly, I think um, genetic testing is very powerful, um, maybe more for other tumor types than uh, pancreatic cancer, but certainly the BRCA mutations is a very good example of getting genetic testing if you're diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, very important because um, those patients are very responsive to the treatment you are getting at the PARP inhibitors. And so do you think, Jane, and again, putting you on the spot here from the scientific standpoint, you think we get to the point where everyone has, you know, uh, a marking and we understand it and everyone's getting personalized medicine? How far? I mean, I know that's somewhat what precision medicine talks about, but how far off do you think we are from that? I mean, I I, I guess we... we, we, I think we're a ways away because... So while research has made great progress in identifying a lot of those genes that we need to test for that um, can drive the tumor growth, um, we need a lot more work um, being done on developing therapeutics that can target those mutations. Like we just don't have the drugs that will Mm -hmm. effectively target most of those. So that's a problem. But the second issue, which was what I was talking about in terms of putting all these roadblocks up on the New York City traffic is that I still don't think precision medicine in and of itself is going to be curative because I, I think that tumors will still find a way around it or find they'll, they'll be drug resistant uh, tumor cells. So it might get close to eradicating a tumor. You might have a more prolonged lifespan, but there's going to have to be some combination of immunotherapy and precision medicine, or maybe it'll be something else. Like, I, I am not naive enough, like, to think that it's going to just be those two. I'm sure there'll be other breakthrough things that we find that may be a much more promising avenue of targeting the tumors. Um, so, I mean, time will tell, um, and I think we are making great progress, but... I don't think it's necessarily one strategy that's going to be curative. I'm going to put you on the spot. Okay. Do you think that is because I think the media here for a second, let's let's play make-believe here. Well, we'll not play make-believe, but I think the media has this notion of this test for cancer and finding a test for cancer. And even if we look back at leukemia, right? If you look back to the 1960s, leukemia was like 98% fatal, right? And today, you know, leukemia is, you know, it's flipped. It's, I, I think, I don't know the exact numbers, but it's, I think, nine in the ni- high 90s in terms of survivability, right? And, mm-hmm. you know, all cancers are bad, but certain cancers are worse. And so, do you think when you say like finding a cure and talking about the traffic grid analogy where like, hey, we, we're going to find ways where we're going to prolong life. We're not going to yeah. eliminate these cancers. Do you think that is kind of like the same ideology in terms of like it's just a matter of time like with leukemia back in 1960s, they were throwing, you know, patients, you know, massive amounts of chemotherapy, massive amounts of radiation to try to find what worked. And eventually they did find what worked clearly because, you know, now, mm-hmm. as I said, leukemia is a disease that is is relatively curable. Um but so do you think that's where the direction where we go or is there something in the back of your mind, you know, being in the lab, 
you know, and being in this field, I guess, for the last 15 years, that you just have seen where pancreatic cancer is just so violent and so hard to it crack. Is. Um, so I'm, I am optimistic. I think in, you know, my foreseeable uh, immediate career that we're going to get it to a point where the survival is very much prolonged and it's treatable. Yeah. But I think there's going to have to be quite a big breakthrough to get to the point where, you know, your tumor just vanishes and we figure out a way to make that happen. Yeah, I think that, I think the whole talk of like a a drug test for cancer is very naive. I I think it's almost like, it's almost foolish to say that. And I, I think my, for my thought process, Jane, and we've known each other for the last, you know, almost five years, you know, in in the sense that um, I, I think we are going to get really good at treating this disease. I don't think we'll ever find a cure in my lifetime and possibly not yours. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, and a cure I mean by like, hey, like you walk in, you take a a shot or, you know, you do the treatment and it's gone. I think we've got to get really good. You've got to become very good before you can become great. And I think that's what we need to. We need to get a lot better. We need to get really good at this disease and i think we're far away from that before we can kind of thinking about eradicating and i'm not trying to be a pessimist i think i'm just more of a realist and i think when you look at it from a dollars and cents the amount of money that takes to get to that point you know and and you just said it before like in terms of you know we need drugs we don't have drugs i mean the same yeah i mean Abraxine was the last drug that was introduced, right? Major drug, right? Into the, right. the, the equation here. And that, that's not even, that's not a novel drug. No. That's basically that's, Taxol, that, yeah. you know, one of the oldest cancer therapeutics. So, yeah, we have a lot, a lot of room for improvement on the drug front, that's for sure. Which is which is a whole other animal, right? Like you're, we're talking about this, the basic science and the research here. So I, I think it's, uh, you know, I, I think the good news is there's a lot of exciting things happening, and there's also a lot of young people, uh, i.e., you, mm-hmm. Jane, um, that are doing some great things. And on that note, um, what have you seen like in the last five years that's been kind of one of the biggest catalysts? in this charge um, for the improvements and the excitement of this disease? You mean in terms of potential treatment yeah. modalities? Yeah. I mean, we have we have a different set of glasses and a lens that we look through here, right? Because we're kind of patient-centric. Um, you know, we're in our own bubble and fundraising. And then, you know, we kind of, you know, work with the scientists and the doctors that uh, we we, you know, we were working with, and that's a little bit different than, um, you know, your bubble that you're in, you know, more on the, the science side. Um, but, you know, I mean, I know the, the labs there have been growing. I know there's been some people, new people that have arrived there at NYU from across town um, that are making it uh, exciting to see a lot of activity happen there. So are there, you know, what are you seeing on your end, you know, in terms of the excitement in this disease and, and what you guys are doing? certainly seems to be that there's um, a shift in focus, um, and especially here at NYU, uh, to the what was I was alluding to um, at the beginning, which is the, the stromal part of the tumor that's not the tumor cells, so structural component of the tumor as well as the immune cells. Um, and we have great um, medical oncologists who also have labs who 
a lot of the clinical trials that are being started here are actually based on changing the immune cells in the tumor um, such that um, some of the immunotherapies that are already approved um, can be used in combination with these new agents, and then maybe we can get an immune response. And I think that's really exciting, and that's my project in the lab. I've all been working on these immune cells um, called macrophages and dendritic cells, and actually it turns out, to answer one of your previous questions about we don't know any why immunotherapy is not working in pancreatic cancer, it's not totally true. There's two, two main reasons. One is has to do with the fact that there's not a lot of mutations in pancreatic cancer, so the, the cells aren't producing a lot of proteins that the immune system will recognize that are foreign. But the other thing is that there's not a lot of these killer T cells in pancreas tumors. Like melanoma and the other cancers have a lot of T cells, and that's what the drugs that are now approved act on. So work here is really trying to understand, okay, there's these other immune cells, macrophages, et cetera, in the tumors that interact with T cells and can recruit them. So if we can make drugs that target those cells and change their phenotypes so that we can get more T cells into the tumor, then combining that with one of these PD-1 inhibitors or any of the other T cell drugs, then maybe we might be able to get um, regression of the tumor. So George Miller, um, when he's a surgical oncologist and has a lab that we collaborate with often here, um, has a few clinical trials that are just about to start, and they're based on this concept. So um, targeting um, other immune cells in combination with the T cell immunotherapy, and we're seeing big effects in mice, and of course this is just in mice, but um, the tumors are shrinking. So now it's, now it's a, a waiting game to see if in the clinical trials whether this has, um, you know, introduces the potential for immunotherapy to actually work in humans. So it's very, very exciting, I think. Awesome. That's uh, that is exciting, and I love I love getting these tidbits. I, you know, I think someone had mentioned that to me at NYU, but I love getting the dirt, Jane, <laughs> of what's going on. <laughs> it's so exciting for me, and you know, you and I talked about this. You know, being at AACR just a couple uh, weeks back. I mean, it was back in September, so a couple months back here, and seeing so many young people in the audience. I think yeah. that's the, the biggest I've ever seen in terms of the youth in the audience for this meeting. And it's strictly focused on pancreatic cancer. And it was just so awesome. So on that note, how is it? I mean, Great. you're young, you're smart, you're a female, like in the science field, like what does that mean to you? I mean, your parents, I know, are probably super proud of everything you've accomplished. I, I've been fortunate to meet both. I think I've believe I met both I know I met your dad I think so I believe I met your mom um so what is that you know what does it mean I mean what uh well you know I um it's nice to hear you say that it's uh, been a long road so uh, you know um I don't necessarily have that fresh perspective but I am really excited actually to make the next step in my career and, you know, hopefully get my own lab in New York where I can, you know, dictate research projects and um, focus on, I'll still focus on pancreatic cancer. 
I hope to make my lab a little bit more translational in terms of trying to develop some of these therapeutics for things that uh, we find in the lab are important for the pancreatic cancer growth. Um, and maybe that's bringing a little bit of my dad into this because he's always been on the other side of, you know, making things into a drug and getting them to a patient. He has a couple of FDA-approved drugs, and his technology um, is um, very robust that he uses. Unfortunately, it hasn't shown promise in pancreatic cancer, but I kind of like to merge, um, you know, the very basic side with a more translational side. And I'm very excited, and I hope that um, I'm able to make the step soon to be a completely independent researcher. Of course, I'll still have, um, I would love to collaborate with uh, Daphna, and I'm sure I will be seeking her advice all the time. But um, that's, I think, you know, kind of what's at the next stage for me here. Awesome. Awesome. Well, I can't wait to see it. And my last question, and this is going to be the hardest one, Jane, probably. I give, okay. I give you a blank check, and the sky's the limit in terms of the amount. Where, where do you invest it in this disease and what you're doing? Where do you invest it? What's, well, what, let me rephrase that. What becomes your priority with the blank check? Like, where do you go? I would say, um, you know, a lot of people would probably say early detection, um, but I still don't think that that's going to result in a better outcome given our lack of understanding of how to target the disease. So I would say that should go into drug development for the targets we know that are important for tumor growth. And that includes um, immune targets and the immune cells. I love it. I love it. Well, Jane, for our listeners at home, um, and we have a pretty vast audience, but if there's something that someone heard that they want to learn more about and reach out to you, what's the best way that uh, our listeners can connect with you? Whether I know you do, um, I know you were doing, correct me if I'm wrong, the science and, bre- and beer or breweries and you were doing like Sunday science. Oh yeah, I have all kinds of outreach programs. Yeah. I mean, the best way to contact me is send me an email, which I'm happy. Yeah, to why don't you share your email you. with our audience? Absolutely. Um, but yeah, I do. I have this beer with a scientist program at a bar in the East Village, and this is basically um, this is in collaboration with a colleague of mine, Emily Buksik, who also works on pancreas cancer in the lab. And we're our goal is really to um, bring science to the public, and this isn't focused on pancreatic cancer; it's focused on all scientific concepts and. We get a professor um, or a clinician from every kind of field to give a talk first Sunday of the month at this bar, and it's really fun. It's recorded as a podcast, um, and you can check out our website, um, www.beerwithascientistnyc.com for that. Um, but in terms of contacting me personally, like please like send me an email anytime, and I'm happy to um, have any discussion with you or answer any questions. Awesome. And I want to thank you, Jane, from all of us here at Project Purple for all the energy that you put into this disease. Uh, Not only, I mean, you know, for a lot of the folks that have run with us over the last four years, you were kind of the outlet and calming nerves and helping them train. And um, I, I can't thank you enough of all the hard work you put into that even though it wasn't your day job and i know you were trying to help us out as we grew oh, and, and... it was so 
fun to do, and I'm, I'm so grateful to be a part of the Project Purple family and all the work that you do in terms of raising funds for the disease and just just the committed group of people and the passionate group of, of people and runners has been really incredible um, to work with. So I look forward to uh, what's in store for the future for both of us. Well, I cannot wait to see you grow from where you are right now. And um, it's exciting, as I said, you know, to have so many young people in this field and especially mm-hmm. knowing you and your passion and all the reasons and all the right reasons you're doing what you're doing. Uh, we appreciate it. And I know I'm sure uh, the listeners at home that are dealing with the disease, you know, appreciate it probably tenfold. So. Thank you for taking time out of your busy day. Uh, I know you probably want to get back to the lab and and keep doing your day job. And uh, we appreciate it. And uh, folks, that's a wrap on another episode of the Project Purple Podcast. Mm -hmm.